Hello friends and welcome to the show. If you consider yourself to be a leader today, you're something special because right now, which is May of 2020, we are living in one of the most interesting and ambiguous times ever. And as organizations struggle with a pandemic, each of you as bosses are gonna be required to figure out a plan for moving forward. And that all sounds great when there's no stress, but today we have tons of ambiguity we're expected to have answers when right now there probably isn't a lot of answers. So to help us out, I decided to bring my friend Mike Staver back to the show. We had him about a year and a half ago and he talked about his book, Leadership Isn't for Cowards. Well, I think that's relevant today, don't you? If you're a coward, you're of no physical use to anybody. So Mike's gonna give you strategies. How do we do this when we don't have access to a lot of information? How do we keep our heads up so that our people have faith in us and our organization? He's a great guy. You'll love him. Let's just quit talking about him. Let's talk to him. You know what to do. Buckle up. It's time to ride. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. Well, this is this has been the biggest challenge we've faced is that my mom is still alive and she's in her 80s. She still works full time. So she was sent home and they said, we'll pay you. We'll bring you work. My wife's parents are in their 80s and 70s. And my father-in-law's of the mindset that, yeah, this ain't real. We just we just go out. And so, I mean, people joke on the Facebook, you know, like when I was little, my parents said I couldn't go out. Now I've got to do the same thing to them. So. Right. You're right. We went up to see him on Saturday and we stopped at Walmart to get him some stuff. All masks, of course, we had. And yeah. I thought, man, these, these, there is like Mennonite people that are just in the, you know, they, and I thought, wow, they, I don't even know if they vaccinate or whatever, but that's the challenge, right? You've got some people who are paranoid and you've got some that are overconfident right. and then there's somewhere in the middle, but I don't even know what the right place to be in the middle really is. And I guess I would love for somebody to be able to step up and tell me, here's what you ought to do. And it's based on these facts. And if we do these things, you'll be safe. And we don't have that either. It's no. ambiguity everywhere. That's right. And one of the things I, I say to leaders all the time is, you know, human beings have several needs, but the two biggest needs in a time like this that they need is a sense of certainty and a sense of significance. So if, if we can provide some sense of certainty. So today when I was talking to the president of that company and I, and she asked me, what do I see that's working? Well, what I see that works, at least in my limited experience with my client group is providing a sense of certainty. And she said, well, what is that? And when there's no certainty, I said, well, certainty comes in the sphere of what you have control or influence over. So a leader can say, I'm going to be here. I'm going to communicate regularly. We're going to take your safety into consideration. I think that the, the circle is smaller now, but we can still provide certainty about the things we're certain about. We're going to make decisions based on the best interest of your health and the best interest of our employees and the best interest of our customers. That's a form of certainty. Um, and the other relative to significance, I think that connection matters most. I, I think I say all the time, you know, the more people feel like they matter, the more comfortable they, that somebody's listening or paying attention, the better they feel. And I think if, if leaders can carve out those spaces, significance and certainty for their followers, they're going to be in a lot better shape than the leader who just sort of says, ah, oh, we'll figure it out. If they need me, they'll call me, you know, kind of like, you know, it's like kind of your surgeon, right? You don't want your surgeon walking in saying, hey, we're going to give it a shot. 
<laughs> at <laughs> See, least not while you're still awake, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. You don't want it to be an AT&T commercial. I think what people see too is when they see you at a point of crisis, they see what they're getting themselves into. My uh, my first wife, uh, her mother, they were divorced when we met in high school. And so we got married. And so her mother remarried. We was getting ready to remarry a guy. And she was kind of a little bit off the rails. And I remember it was a Christmas and her fiance, of course, they were in their 50s, I guess. Yeah. And she had this major meltdown over why did we bring gifts to her ex-husband's house and we didn't bring them there. And she went into this full blown, just, it was just a train wreck. And I thought, I hope this guy sees what he's getting himself into right now, because this is when you're in a relationship, when you're still technically putting out your best side and to see someone in a crisis. So I think that's kind of what we hear echoed too, is like, I'm seeing a side of somebody I'd never saw before. And I actually like that side. And then there's the other side. Like, wow, we never saw that coming. Yes. And when you see... Um, people used to ask me uh, that wanted to get in the public speaking business, professional speaking business, they would say, well, how do you overcome stage fright, blah, 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 blah. So I'd talk about that. But what I would always say is you never, ever, ever let them see you sweat and you never get up there and start apologizing or saying you don't know what you're doing or you don't know what you're talking about. Or this is the first time you've ever given a speech because the whole audience is going to look at you and say, well, what are we guinea pigs? And I think leadership's the same way. I think it's okay to be vulnerable. I'm a big proponent of saying, I don't have all the answers. I really don't know about what's going to happen next. I don't know when the town's going to open the city. I don't know when you're going to be able to get a haircut. But what I do know is here's the path we're going to take forward. And here's the direction and it could change tomorrow morning. I don't know if you experience this, but it used to be I was pretty sure about what was going to happen in the course of the day. But now I get up every morning saying, whatever comes, I'm going to have to deal with it. And there has to be that flexibility that's married to that certainty in order for, I think, in order for people to lead people through ambiguity and, and um, crisis. So, Mike, you and I are relatively close to the same age. And yeah. so we've seen, I can pinpoint at least two other crises you know, that would kind of stack up with this. So one would be the financial collapse in 08 and then 9-11. So from where you see it, where does this stack up? And from those previous two, because we were both of an age where we were, you know, working and doing business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how have people reacted today versus those days that you've observed? Yeah. Um, I think this is uh, different than, well, first of all, if you look at 9-11, 9-11 happened in two regions of the country that, or three regions of the country, Washington, D.C., Pennsylvania, and New York. And it was tragic and horrible. And it was acute. It was an acute psychological injury and physical injury, of course, and death for some. But for the country, it was an, an acute, which means a limited period of of intensity. But if you think back to 9-11 as an example, I think we were flying a week, maybe a week and a half or two weeks later. At least you could. Not a lot of people did. So, and then relative to the the recession or the collapse of 2008, I think the big difference is that this is the first time there's been a systemic restriction on our way of life. So we had a financial restriction, we had an emotional restriction, we had a national crisis. But what this has done is affected three fundamental areas of our lives. It has affected or has the potential to affect our health our economics, and our freedom. And when that trifecta is present, people are going to lean against the thing that they're most sensitive to. So my mom is 80. She's immunocompromised, very healthy, but she does have an um, immune disease, autoimmune disease. So she's at risk. 
Um, but she has a very secure retirement. She doesn't feel economically stressed by this. She doesn't really feel too much of her freedom, uh, although she does tell us all the time that this is revenge because we put her on restriction. Don't let her go out or go to the grocery store. She said to us on her birthday, well, I guess we were there for her birthday, so it's been since then. She said, this is revenge for you boys. Like, <laughs> like Rich says to her all the time, Rich says, mom, you can't go outside. I'm just going to go sit in the backyard. Okay, but don't go anywhere else. I'm like, what, a, what did I not do my homework? Why can I not? Why can I not go somewhere? It's so funny. Um, but this is the first time now where we've said it's very likely you're economically impacted unless you have ridiculous net worth. It's very likely that people you influence, particularly as a leader, are economically impacted. Our freedoms are impacted and our health is threatened. So that causes our brains and our psyche to have to fight battles on multiple fronts. And um I think that's why we're seeing some of the torque that we're seeing with people having enough. Um, and I've often said, and we studied this in graduate school a little bit, but I didn't really ever experience it until now. There comes a time in a culture and there comes a time, whether your culture is your business or the country or the world, where there's enough tension and torque that people start to have to unwind that tension in some way. And so some people say, I'm not going to wear a mask. Some people say, I'm going to go protest on the Capitol steps. Some people say, I'm going to collapse. Some people say, I'm going to drink more. I'm going to eat more ho-hos or ding-dongs. I don't know what the coping is, <laughs> excuse me, but the further this goes on, excuse me, the longer it goes, the more that tension between those three dynamics uh, comes into play for people. And it takes a lot. I mean, even me, I, I work with leaders for a living. My background's in mental, mental health. Well, not my personal background, but I used to work in mental health business and I really have to manage it. You know, I really have to pay attention to my energy and my mood and am I letting things go sideways? I have to restrict what goes in and out of my eyes and ears so that I and my mouth so that I'm taking better care of myself. I think that's the big difference. Yeah. So what would be, I mean, so we you're a leader of leaders, you're a developer of leaders. So you know things that leaders come to you, so you coach them through that. So take us through what a good healthy process is for you. Yeah. If you would be so kind. Sure. Happy to. Um, the first thing I do is, um, is I accept the notion that whatever you look at and whatever you listen to is the nourishment of the brain. Whatever you listen to and whatever you see is what the brain uses for nourishment. So I'm very careful about what I let myself watch and what I let myself listen to. I've probably unfollowed, eliminated, or unfriended more people on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, probably not LinkedIn, but others since this started because I just won't let myself entertain poison. And there's a lot of poison. So I don't watch the news. I look at one source every morning, Worldometer, uh, for some data to get a sense of where we are so I can help leaders think. So that's the first thing. I'm very careful about that. Uh, every morning, the routine is basically the same. I get up, I take a shower like I'm going to work because I am. Um, I have a little something to eat. I do a uh, gratitude. I spend um, three to five minutes every morning, just quiet, immersed in gratitude, usually on my back porch to allow myself to manage that. Because right now it's more important that we're human beings before we start doing everything. Um, I limit my exposure to um, uh, what I call frantic or hysterical kind of behaviors where you get in a fast pace all day and things are coming at you all day. And then I learned from a doctor a few weeks ago. It was so fascinating. He is a fellow in Eastern medicine, I think, at UCLA Medical Center. He's an internist. 
who got a fellowship in internal in uh, Western medicine. And he said that we have to manage the ratio between activity and rest, which I thought was so smart. And I thought he meant get some sleep and get some exercise. He said, no, that's the Western way of seeing it. He said, in, in the East, what we would teach as physicians is that you have to make sure that the activities that you're allowing your brain to do all day are offset by the amount of space you give your brain to relax. So I'm fortunate in Arizona, I can still ride my motorcycle. So I might get on my bike and ride out through the desert um, to rest. And so that's part of my routine. And then when I leave in the afternoon, I make sure I leave. I leave my phone, I leave my office, I leave my computer, I leave all of that. Um, and then I connection and service is really important. The last part of my routine, which is integrated all day, is I try to make sure I'm connecting with uh, five to seven people personally and professionally. And I just do it randomly. I flip through my contacts and pick a letter and I look down the letters. Oh, I haven't talked to them in a while. I haven't talked to them in a while. And then, um, uh, yeah. And then I just check in with folks and see how I can be of service. That's basically my routine every day. It's not a thousand percent different than the way it used to be, except for I entertain less poison than I used to, less drama, less negativity, and I'm here more. So I have to manage my physical space. I have to get outside. I eat lunch outside, you know, those kind of things. Well, you're fortunate you live in a place where the weather is reasonably nice. Although you guys have had a massive heat wave, I think, oh, this week too. 100 so, degrees right now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty early for you guys. So when you are checking in on your colleagues, and we could just kind of take a, maybe a broad brush, what percentage of them do you think are actually handling this? crisis well. And when I mean well, I mean, they're actually strong. Colleagues in terms of what you and I do, you mean? Or Yeah. Colleagues? Well, I mean, just maybe humans in general. And for me, it's people that are some, some, somewhat in my inner circle, I guess. So that's my, my way of looking at it. And I don't want to identify anybody personally, but sure, I understand. I just yeah. want to know if I'm, if I'm normal or, you know, <laughs> well, man. it's a toss up now. I mean, I don't even know what that definition means anymore yeah. for any of us, but I will tell you that I think overall, the people that I interact with are doing a remarkably good job. You know, we human beings are resilient. We we figure out a way. I've got a good buddy, very good friend up in New Jersey. His mom's 93 years old, and she lost her husband, his dad, about uh, four months ago. She's been very depressed, and and she got invited to be in this elderly senior citizens, elderly women sewing circle, making surgical masks. She's knocking out 500 masks a week. Wow. And yeah, right. At 93 years old on a sewing machine uh, out of queen size sheets. I mean, they're really nice too. And so um, I'm seeing the people in my circle really do relatively well. I do see like, and I'm glad I see occasionally, you know, friends will call or I'll call friends and we're like, man, today was a rough day. Yeah, let's talk through it. I think people who are who are real, I, I said on a, a webinar I did last week, I said, there's not enough lipstick in every Ulta cosmetic studio in America to make this pig pretty. There's just not. <laughs> so that's a, that's kind of a Tennessee line. You can use that, Mac. I, I think I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's not enough lipstick in every Ulta studio in the country to make this pig pretty. So, um, so I think being real is important. I think giving yourself permission to have moments of this kind of sucks is okay um, in short amounts. And so overall, I, I think people are, are managing. I think they're being resilient. I think they're being respectful of other people's um, limitations. You know, I went out, um, one of the lakes nearby is open. And so we went out on the boat the other day. Some people probably wouldn't have thought that was a good idea, but they weren't judging us for doing that. And so it was a friend's boat. So mm -hmm. 
overall, I think the people who just take it a day at a time and do what they can and are vulnerable enough to admit when they're having a tough time and saying, hey, uh, I could use a lifeline right now are doing well. Do you think that the amount of anxiety people are experiencing is because of the actual threat at hand or is it more based on that we don't know when it's going to end? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think it depends on where you live and what you're exposed to. So um, I was talking to somebody the other day who has COVID-19 or is just recovering from it. She lives in New York. Um, Her her anxiety is real because it's inside of her, right? She's actually living it in downtown Manhattan. Thank God she didn't have to be hospitalized. Um, And so I think it has to do, I talk a lot about proximity to crisis or proximity to threat. So the closer you are or the more personal it is, the more anxiety you're likely to have. Here's where the risk comes in. The risk comes, because here's where anxiety starts. Anxiety starts by making a negative prediction about the future. You can't feel anxious about what's happening right now. You can only feel anxious about what you're afraid might happen. So as long as we manage those expectations in the moment, so if somebody says, oh, I'm scared to death, I'm going to get the virus, um, and I ask them based on what, and they're just like, well, have you seen the news? Have you seen the That I don't think is a rational approach to it. But if I'm concerned because my friend had it and I had dinner with my friend the other night, that's a different level of anxiety. And so I'm very careful with my friends, clients, family members, and mostly myself when I feel that or sense that to go, okay, wait, let's look at what the real threat is to you right now today in this moment um, and what your proximity is to danger. Because you know, it's one thing to see a rattlesnake in an aquarium. It's another thing to be walking down a path and see the rattlesnake in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the distinction. And I call that mental discipline, having the mental discipline to force your brain to look at the facts. How does a leader then communicate that? I mean, I guess that for one, you have to have your own house in order. But then, you know, that seems like you would almost need a psychologist to do that. What are some ways that we could be able to have those conversations? Do you have any kind of scripts or something? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one of the things that I share with leaders is to ask this question, what do we know to be true right now, right here? What do we know to be true and real right here, right now? So in our building, in our market, in our place right here, what do we know to be true? I talked to the president the other day of a company. Uh, here in Arizona. And um, he said, uh, what do you think, Mike? And I avoid speculative conversation because I don't think speculative conversation does anybody good. And I said, well, I think with antibody testing and this new project that they've put together, this sort of to try to figure things out, I'm very hopeful. And he said, well, you know, we had 300 new cases in um, the greater Phoenix area over the last week. And I said, what kind of cases and how old were they? And what was the spread rate? Well, it turns out the majority of those cases were in a limited group and a limited area of largely elderly folks. Now that's not to say don't worry about it. And it's not to say to worry about it. It's just to say, now what, what is that outcome? So I always encourage leaders, psychologists or not, what do we know to be true right now? Is the first question. The second question is what do we have control over right now? What can we do right now? We can socially distance. We can wear a mask. We can wash our hands. We can, take care of our customers. I And then the third question that I asked them to ask is, what could we do right now to have an impact in the lives of our customers or for leaders in the lives of our direct reports? And here's why I asked that question. 
Because as soon as we start getting out of ourselves, as soon as we start opening ourselves up to service and being able to help others, all of a sudden we become less me focused. So I think those questions are questions I would encourage folks to to ask when of their direct reports. You know, what do we know now? Um, and then, you know, how can we be of service? Those are important. One of the challenges I think we're going to see is when we eventually go back to what normal is going to look like. I don't know if every office or organization will physically all want to go back. I think a lot of people are going to realize, well, I could get a lot done uh, having my people work remote and we don't have this expensive rent. And I don't know what the, I don't, I've been to California in probably two years, but I, everything I hear is that there's no more smog. Yeah. Nobody's driving. And, you know, frankly, things are okay. So I guess when we start thinking about the new normal, what are some things that leaders are going to need to know as they start kind of corralling everybody in, bringing them back into the new normal? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing they're going to need to know is they're going to need to know their audience. One of the things leaders are going to have to know that they didn't pay as much attention to before probably, and you and I, you know, we work with leaders every day and some are more acutely aware of what their followers need than others. But now I dealt with a company this morning in South Florida and they've got a person who is just not sure about coming back to work. And then they've got the owner in this particular case was like, we've got a sanitation company here. We sanitize the office at, uh, at night when everybody leaves. There's hand sanitizer everywhere. When it's time to come back to work, we're going to take your safety seriously. So the first thing you got to know is your audience. You got to know and be sensitive to and respectful of the varying degrees of what people are feeling or what they're experiencing. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think leaders need to evaluate whether we want to bring everybody back or not. Is it necessary? I talked to the president of a, of a title company uh, last week, and or I guess it's been a couple of weeks ago, and he's reevaluating square footage. I think we've got to start thinking about, again, proximity when we bring people back and do we need to bring everybody back? There are companies right now, Mac, who are saying, I don't know if we're going to send salespeople on the road anymore. They built a company, built a studio in their building to do sales presentations, kind of interactive sales presentations of their product. So the second thing is I would eliminate this notion that we've got to go back to something and we've got to bring people back as much as if I was going to reconstruct the business right now, what would it, how would it look different? right? Do I have to bring everybody back? Does everybody have to come back the same way? Are there jobs that might be more economical? Might I save on some square footage a year from now when the lease comes up if I didn't slam you know, 100,000 square feet full of people? I think the third thing is that you, you've got to check your own bias as a leader. There are going to be leaders who are going to be in a big hurry. Let's get back to it. Let's get on with it. There are going to be other leaders who are going to be much more conservative. I think you got to check yourself. I, a friend of mine says, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you got to be thinking, what is my bias here? And I have to make sure my bias is not creating undue angst for others. Um, and that I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I am, I, I, this is what I say, rationally prepared, future focused. Yeah. You know, it seems, and I don't know what your experience has been. I think there are some people who, because of the fact that they are all basically working out of their houses, that they have gotten a little closer to their coworkers because they're seeing them in a very different light. I mean, we had uh, Lisa and Rachel and I had our virtual meeting last week and I don't think Rachel's listening to this, so that's good. But I mean, it was, it was 630 in the morning, my time, they live on the East coast and cause she's got a young child. And I looked and I mean, 
Rachel comes in, it looks like two squirrels were fighting in her hair. I mean, it was all over the place. And, <laughs> and I thought, I mean, I don't care. It doesn't bother. We have a, I mean, we're all virtual. We live in yeah, different places, but yeah. we're seeing each other at, at different stages. Most people will put on their facade when they walk into work. Yeah. And now you, you just, they roll out of bed 10 minutes before the Zoom call and they really don't even bother except maybe cinching up their robe and they got a cup of coffee. So do you think that this is going to translate this new like, I'm not going to say intimate because that's not the right word, but this different way we've seen people, do you think that's going to translate back to whatever new normal is and how would that impact us? Yeah. Um, I, I think the, um, do you mean translate in terms of how people show up to work or what? Right. I mean, so, I mean, how is this going to impact their relationships? Like, wow, I've never, I mean, this is why, you know, I know you've probably done a bunch of these, right? You send executives on some retreat. They want to see you you know, do a trust fall or walk on hot coals in your bare feet. And then we're supposed to see you in a different light. And that'll bring a new perspective when we get back to the office. Is that going to be like that? I think it could. And I think it'll be every, here's what's going to happen for the, for, for the listeners to your podcast. Um, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to know. The way you lead them now is the way they'll treat you later. If they trust you more, believe in you more and have more certainty coming out of this, they're going to charge hell with a squirt gun. If you have largely not spent a lot of time building those relationships and spending time and and doing the more uh, 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 kind of getting to know you connectivity, let's just face it. We did not survive as a species because we have sharper teeth or thicker skin or bigger brains. We survived as a species because of community and because we figured out when there was a threat outside the village, how to use the members of the village to protect the tribe. That's how we survived. And so the, the leaders that help have, have really been good about helping people figure out how to protect the tribe and how to protect the village, that being their business, their organization, their department, whatever it is. I think people are going to come back with a certain level of um, uh, a certain level of commitment that they would not have otherwise had, either good or bad. That being said, there are those who are very, very formal. I've got a client who she is, I mean, absolutely off the cover of a magazine. She's probably 79 years old, owns a company. <clears throat> I love her to death. Very dear friend of mine. She looks like she's off the cover of a magazine on every call she's on. That's what she does. She has a manager who made the mistake on a management call of showing up uh, in a t-shirt, a pair of jeans, and a baseball hat on backwards and showed up to a Zoom call that way. And she didn't say anything to him. She just called me and said, you're coaching him. Could you fix that? And so I think I think people are going to have to rethink what was before. But I'm just saying the way you lead now is the way they're going to follow you later. And I think that those connections are going to matter more. I think more loyalty is being built right now than ever before amongst certain people. I agree. I think also I've talked to several people who've been laid off and the way they are being let go is with zero dignity. I know it's terrible. Some things as, as poor as just, they don't really let them know. You just can't log into your computer. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, oh, we, yeah, we meant to tell you, you don't work here anymore. So I think that reputation is going to carry across too. I think how, so too. How poorly they treat people. I think companies are going to pay a price for their lack of humanity because this is a human, this is a systemic worldwide human crisis, right? It's not, it's an event-based crisis. I do think you know, based on the numbers and the way we went in that we're going to recover quickly, but it's going to take a while to get, what is it? 14 million people. Well, many people back to work. 
And the less human an organization is, the harder it's going to be for them in the long run. Because they'll be, I mean, look at what happened with the PPP loans. The banks that did a good job of managing the human element of these loans are doing great. Now I heard, I heard yesterday there's a class action lawsuit against a major U.S. bank um, from small business owners. The you know national whatever the National Association of I don't know what it's called, but it's a small business association, but not the SBA. Uh, you know, sponsoring some legislation to try to get through Congress about the way banks have treated people. And I don't have an opinion one way or the other about that, except to say the more human you are the more likely it is that people are going to be loyal and follow you. Maybe the best way to say it is the best good human that you are. I guess you're going to be a human anyway. (laughs) So I I don't want specifics because your stuff is confidential, but are you seeing a change in what your coaching clients are wrestling with? Because I know that you coach leaders. Are you seeing any shift in this? Yeah, I am. I'm seeing uh, a lot of shift in when is it time, uh, particularly in organizations, when I coach sales leaders, when is it time to get back to selling? When are we no longer tone deaf? How do we reintroduce the notion of sales and quotas and all that kind of thing? Um, that's a big question. Um, another question, the most obvious question is safety issues. I'm not a safety guy, but you know, how do we be sensitive to that and still sensitive I think the big question I'm getting asked a lot is how am I sensitive to the concerns that people have while still getting the work done? That is a big question. And I think the uh, another question I get asked a lot that that people are, are, are struggling with is, is the structure that I currently have the best structure? I don't mean currently remote. Like if you go back to February, if you look at February and the way my business operated in February, my department or my team, has this taught me something that will help me emerge more efficient or effective? So how do I still do the business and adapt accordingly? But I think those are the big, those are the big things that people are grappling with. Okay. I mean, I asked that because if anybody's listening, I want them to know that they're not alone. I mean, That's right. every, everybody's wrestling with something. That's right. So let's think about this too. Um, America, as long as probably the last 20 some years has, I think, been pretty divided. I mean, I'm trying to remember what it was like when I was a little kid and everybody waves the flag. And generally speaking, you had politics, but no one had a a place to post all their views and get really nasty with them. And so after 9-11, there was that moment when all of the the entire Congress got together and saying, God bless America. And there was some unity. And I hadn't seen that in a very long time. And it it stuck. People were waving flags and then slowly started to fade away. And then, of course, we had the financial crisis, and I really didn't see a whole lot of people bonding together. Right. Frankly, I kind of expected that you know America would bond together over COVID-19, but it still seems divided. Do you ever see a time when human beings, just to say here in America, would ever get back to a place where they say, let's go beyond politics and religion and background and skin color and gender and just be the united humans of America? Do you ever see that? If the voices for that can get louder than the voices against that, yes. I think that people tend to talk about not being divided by trying to say, if you were more like me, we wouldn't be divided. Uh, And I think that that is a very narcissistic view. And I call them keyboard cowards. Anybody can get on a keyboard and type anything they want on Twitter. They can type anything they want on Facebook. They can call people names. They can do whatever they want. But here's what I've found. 
Uh, I watched the Mr. Rogers documentary, not Won't You Be My Neighbor by Tom Hanks, but the Mr. Rogers documentary on a plane. You remember what planes were, right? Remember when we used to be on those? <laughs> a and, long uh, time ago, yeah. long time ago. <laughs> and um, one of the things he said uh, at the beginning of every meeting, Fred Rogers at the beginning of every staff meeting said, we need to make kindness popular again. And I have been, I have, I, I my heart has been lifted over the last two months as I have said, as I've invited people to be a force for positive and a force for good and to join a movement for kindness, how popular that is. So rather than criticize those who are divisive, I think if we start uniting people f- for kindness and you know, the other thing that he said that I thought was brilliant in the documentary was he said, because he was asked, what do you do with negative, negative people? Because he was kind of accused of being naive in this interview. And he said, always look for the helpers, always go to the helpers. And he said, if you look for the people that help, if you look for the people out there doing great things, then I think there is unity. I think there's more of it than we think. But, um, you know, the bad stuff, our brains are hardwired to believe the bad to try to protect us. So, yeah, I think there's potential if, as we started out, I don't know if we were doing a recording yet, but I said that, um, you know, whatever we put in our eyes and whatever we put in our ears, um, is what our brain has for nourishment. There's a website that I read every morning during my quiet time called goodnewsnetwork.org, I think. Goodnewsnetwork.org. Might be .com. I think it's .org. And it's all good stories. And every time I recommend it or every time I take a stand or somebody I love or care about takes a stand for kindness and uh, it's always the most popular post. So I don't, do I, do I think there will, always be like there always has been people are out there trying to stir up negativity yeah but i think where there's potential in in pockets i just don't think we live in a culture where media and social media and uh promotes that very well yeah i think it, this will change the nature of work and, yeah i think and, so but i don't know if it's going to change the nature of humans i think like anything else we adapt to of course, the longer it goes on, the more that we forget what the old was like. And then, you know, just like air travel after 9-11, I mean, you remember the days when you could take your whole family through and you could even take your big samurai sword. You just, had yeah. to, you know, right. wrap it up and run it through the screener, right? Yeah. And to where it is now, it's it's just going to be a, a very interesting change. Yeah. So I have, I have just one more question for you, Mike. And this one, I've been asking all of my guests this past month, because if right now someone is, let's say they're a senior in high school. They have missed their prom. Most states, I think, have basically written off the school year. There'll be no uh, last week of school. There'll be no senior pranks. There will be no walkthrough graduation for people in Florida and California. There'll be no Disney night. Like I don't know if you had that when you graduated, yeah. but yeah. we had it. You go to Disney all night. And then we think about people who are seniors in college. Now, this is the time where most of the most of them have already had their job offers. They're all getting excited. Graduation's coming. They don't have their mortarboards yet, but the ones that do are already putting on the decorations and whatever, and they're gearing up. Now, all of that has been taken away. So what advice do you have for those disappointed seniors of high school and college as they are ready to enter the world, really, that they would have never predicted even in the fall semester? Such a great question. Uh, I uh, First of all, uh, I am not going to try to, you know, cheer them up about that. You know, I'm not going to try to say, well, at least you graduated and you still have your diploma because that just is not helpful. And I, I think people who try to do that 
Um, so the first thing I would do is I would grieve it, right? I'd be disappointed. I'd let I'd, I'd encourage them to allow themselves to be disappointed. The other thing that I would do, and I, I have a friend, Jeff Savillico, he just uh, graduated the School of uh, Theater Arts or something at a, at a college. He's a Vegas performer. He's brilliant guy, did an amazing job, and he did it virtually. And I'm not saying that you should do that. What I'm saying is that what he said to me when I talked to him after I watched him do it was he said, building community and celebration is still important. So the first thing I would share with them is grieve it. The second thing I would share with them is don't be afraid to build community and do something creative or fun or interesting to celebrate the milestone. Because whether it's college or whether it's high school or whether it's a trade school, you've accomplished major things to get to the place. So I want to encourage you to do it because life is largely about um, difficulty. Uh, Scott Peck in The Road Less Travel says, life is difficult. The beginning of the acceptance of life's difficulties starts to make life difficult. So we don't want to pretend So grieve it, build community around it, and understand that this has the opportunity for you to build a story about your life, about your future, um, that could be transformative. And then finally, I would encourage them to ask themselves, what have I learned that I can apply to my life? Have I learned flexibility? Have I learned how to think through situations? Have I learned to adapt? Have I learned to be flexible? Have I created new and interesting ways to love and care about my friends and family so that we can move forward through this. Um, Dr. Uh, Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, who wrote the book on optimism, learned optimism, said, the beginning of being able to get through a difficult time is to understand the temporary nature of the difficulty. And so you know you're going to get through it, but how we get through it is important. And those would be the things I'd encourage them to do. Yeah, I think that's powerful. I mean, they're not going to really get a graduation speech, so that might have been it right there. (laughs) Hey, hey, think about this for a second, Mike. Um, So a senior in high school, female right now, how is she going to react 20 some years from now when her daughter complains she ain't got a date to the prom? Right. brings a whole new meaning. Do I walk to school in the snow? Yeah, it's exactly. Like, hey, it's going to be a here, hold my beer. That's what this is going to be. <laughs> and, and you'll never top this one. Well, Mike, I've really enjoyed having you. How can my audience reach out to you and, and they can get your, how do they get to your book? But more importantly, how could they engage you to be able to speak to their executive teams in whatever format that's going to look like in the future? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, they can go to mikestaver.com, S-T-A-V-E-R, mikestaver.com. And there's actually a page on mikestaver.com called COVID-19 Crisis Response. And it has a whole series of webinars that we've done over the last six weeks. Uh, Some of them have downloaded worksheets. I want to encourage your audience to share them with their friends and family, maybe play them in a meeting. They're about 45 minutes from leading in times of crisis to staying optimistic. But the most exciting one on the site right now, I think, is preparing for the recovery, how to catch the wave uh, in time. And I think that'll be very important. And even Uh, I think there's a page there about how I'm doing the virtual work now as well. So MikeStaver.com is the the epicenter of everything we're doing. And thank you for having me again, man. We should do this more often. Uh, Absolutely, Mike. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, best of luck as we all figure out what new normal looks like. Exactly. And it's your audience as well. Take care. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. 
This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. (laughs) 